Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, and if you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, you know I promise you're in the right place, and that's because it's true. You certainly are. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers. In case you're keeping track, and I have to, we're up to episode number 226. We do about 50 of these a year, and I'm very happy to be here. Very important topic today. Let me do my intro, and then we'll tell you what we're talking about. The buzz, well, I'm no Michael Buble, but you all know the line, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life. And I'm feeling good. Okay, just keep that in mind. So let's look at the workplace. Let's look at employees. Let's look at health. Bravo to your HR team if they're offering your employees health strategy programs. How thoughtful, how mindful, how progressive, how wonderful. That must mean everyone in your company is healthy and fit, that attendance is up, productivity is up, everybody's having a great time. Wow, you've never had anything like it before. Oh, wait a minute, not so much? What's going on? Oh, well, maybe your HR forgot to address something called workforce behavior. Do your employees really want to change their health habits to be more healthy? Hmm. And what about the health circumstances in their lives, in their everyday lives? What did they come into the job with? What are their home situations? What's their heritage situations? All of this can impact illness prevention. And that's your goal. You want them showing up healthy and fit and active and with their their minds and their hearts in the right place to help your company succeed. There's one other thing your HR just might have not looked at. Perhaps they didn't consider the importance of engagement, commitment, and alignment among the employer and the insurer plan sponsors. Ah, is everybody on the same page? Literally and figuratively. And the healthcare providers and the individual workers. Those are a lot of people to manage in the interest of healthcare. So our topic today is going to be the behavior side of preventive medicine, workplace, employees, and pharma. I think it's a huge topic, and I know we have a great panel to talk about this and offer you some insights. You might have some aha and eureka moments along the next hour and hopefully we'll give you some practical tips and strategies to make your healthcare programs work better and make everybody healthy. Experts speak. We've got three of them. First up, I'm pleased to welcome a newcomer to Game Changers Radio. He is Mike Manisha. I'm going to spell his last name because it doesn't sound exactly like I said it. It's spelled M-A-N-I-C-C-I-A. He's a specialist leader with Deloitte Consulting. And Mike has sent me a very interesting quote from Mark Twain's Puddinhead Wilson Chapter 6 Calendar. Let me just fill in a little of the blanks here. Puddinhead, Puddinhead, P-U-D-D apostrophe N-H-E-A-D Wilson, is a novel by Mark Twain that was serialized in the Century Magazine in 1893 to 94 and later published as a novel in that year, 1894. Uh, just quickly, the fictional Missouri frontier town of Dawson's Landing on the banks of the Mississippi River. Uh, I just want to lay back with a, a mint julep, perhaps, or a mint in my mouth. In the first half of the 19th century, David Wilson, a young lawyer, moves to town. He makes a clever remark, but uh-oh, it's misunderstood. And the locals brand him as a puddinhead, meaning a nitwit. And he collects what? Fingerprints as a hobby? 
doesn't give them any reason to like him anymore. They see him as an eccentric and they stay away from him. And then the plot thickens. I'll leave it at that. So here's the quote Mike has sent us. Habit is habit and not to be flung out the window by any man, but coaxed downstairs one step at a time. Mike Manisha, welcome. How are you, Mike? Hi, Bonnie. Thanks much. Thank you for joining us. Love this. We've had Mark Twain quotes before, but never specifically from Puddinghead Wilson. Are you a big follower of Twain? And tell me how you picked this quote for our topic today. Uh, I, I am a, a, a longtime follower of, of Mark Twain, studied him uh, in school quite a lot. Um, and I, I picked this quote because uh, what I like about it is that it, it speaks really both to the individual and the organization in this situation. What I find is that organizations like employers uh, behave a lot like individuals uh, when they're beginning a health and fitness program. Uh, they start with a rush of enthusiasm, New Year's resolutions, expectations for a quick transformation, uh, and then the daily grind sets in. Uh, I have to do this again tomorrow. Um, and they do the organizational equivalent of, of stepping on a scale, which is they ask for the ROI every day. And so what I like about this, this notion is it's just a reminder that if you're going either as an individual or as an organization to engage in, in a transformation of your health and lifestyle, it's, it's very much grounded habit, and you are going to be in it for the long haul. And it's going to be a step-by-step process. I appreciate that. Do you, do you think in my opening, Mike, that I hit on the key points of maybe employees don't want to change, maybe they like their habits, maybe they're just that's the way they live. They come to work. They do their thing. They go home, and you can't get them off the couch. You can't get them to stop that extra beer. You can't get them to put away the chocolate bar. You can't get them to exercise. How can the? We're going to talk about this in depth with you and your co-panelists in a few minutes. But do you think? Uh, do you think Mark Twain would have taken a more aggressive stand with what employees should be doing to bring more healthful habits into the workforce? Well, I think I, I'm, I'm totally with your description up to the point of you can't, you can't, you can't. I think you can, but I think as, as Mark Twain advises us, it it's, needs to be deliberate and slow. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, that the, the employer or, you know, in some cases the, the uh, insurer, the health plan, uh, can absolutely be a contributor in in this transformation, but it requires persistence and, and it requires some creative thought. And it also requires recognizing that those people who do come into your workplace with these habits have them because they're comfortable to them. And Mm -hmm. so to, to change those, those patterns that have given them in many cases, some, some health consequences that they would rather not have um, requires uh, a, a good, you know, attention to their motivations as well as just your expectations. Thank you very much. Mike, pleasure to have you. And a shout-out to your many colleagues at Deloitte Consulting who are fans of SAP Radio and send us so many excellent thought leaders like yourself. So welcome on board. Great opening to our topic. And now let me introduce a returning panelist, also very special to us, Dr. Paul Tunna. If you want to look him up, his last name is T-U-N-N-A-H. He is the founder of Pharma Forum Media back in 2009. And this time... 
Paul has sent me a quote from Plato. Oh, come on, you young listeners out there. You must have heard of Plato. Let me just give you a little background. Plato was the innovator of the dialogue and dialectic forms in philosophy, which originated with him. He wrote the Republic. He wrote laws among many dialogues. But let me just tell you what the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says about Plato. And this may be news to Paul Tana. Plato, one of the most dazzling writers in the Western literary tradition and one of the most penetrating wide-ranging and influential authors in the history of philosophy. He was not the first thinker or writer to whom the word philosopher should be applied. And I'll leave the rest. You can all Google it and look it up and find out more. Here's the wonderful quote Paul Tana has sent us. Human behavior flows from three main sources, desire, emotion, and knowledge, quoting Plato. Paul Tana, welcome back. How are you, Paul? I'm very good, Bonnie. Thank you for welcoming me back again today. It's good to be here. Oh, we're delighted to have you back. This is actually part two of a topic we started in March. And uh, Mike is the newcomer. You and our upcoming panelist, Joe Miles at SAP, are our returning. We'll call you the anchors. So, Paul, tell me, are you a big follower and a fan of Plato? And uh, what do you think of what the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy said about him? Well, I'm going to pretend that I knew everything you just said about Plato in that opening there, Bonnie. I'm going to see if I can get away with that. But, um, <laughs> oh, sure. We're friends. We can do that. The reality is that, was, uh, <laughs> so that was rather news to me. But I, I do love the quote, and I, I think it's nice to show that this topic we're discussing goes back many thousands of years, indeed to the time when philosophy and science were really one subject. So how does this react, respond to my opening, Paul, in terms of getting your workforce healthy so they come to work and the most amazing thing happens? They're productive. They show up. They're thinking. They're contributing. They're participating. Their heart is where your heart is. They're in it fully for the, the business success, but they're healthy enough to accomplish and help you accomplish all that. What would Plato say about that? How does desire, emotion, yeah. and knowledge come into play? Yeah, well, I think it ties into what um, Mike was just saying around, you know, you can easily assume that people do things because of what they do or don't know, and that the way to address that is to sort of tell people and try and fill those knowledge gaps. And I think certainly for big organizations, when they look at employees and internal communication, those kind of things are really easy to do. It's easy to sort of put out programs of broadcast that tell people certain things. But actually, everybody is different. Everybody has their own habits, as we've already heard. Everybody has their own sort of emotions and desires, which is the really key part of this. It's about understanding why would people want to change? What's in it for them? How does that align with what the company's trying to do? And what are the daily emotions going through their heads around why they should be changing or what's potentially blocking them? And I think understanding that sort of not only shared objective and, yes, understanding the knowledge gaps, but how do people look at that and what's the language they use is really important. I'll give you one quick example before yes, we move please. on. So, you know, a good friend of mine who is a three-time cancer survivor and has been through, as you can imagine, mm. some real challenges, oh, he yeah. talked about his motivation for taking these medicines, enduring the side effects and getting through it, not being about beating cancer and that kind of clinical um, talk, for him, it's really about being there to dance on the table at his daughter's wedding. Same mm. goal, but the way that he looks at it is very, very different, and the way he feels about that goal is very different to the way a doctor would. Mm. Mm. You hit the heartstrings there, Paul, and you know that. Yes, and, and something you said very, very intrigued me. Uh, you said, what's in it for me? And 
That is true. And I'm wondering later on in our conversation if you and and Mike and, and Joe Miles might talk about the segments of the employee population. I think we all know by now that millennials are here. They're here to stay. They are overcoming, overtaking all of the other generations, the five generations currently side by side in the workforce, maybe willingly or unwillingly, wittingly or unwittingly, happily or unhappily. But I'm wondering what the millennials' attitude is if that's going, we're going to see a sea change or a, a tsunami of awareness and caring about having good health habits in the workforce. So let's just leave that one on the table. We'll talk about it later. Paul Tana, thank you so much and welcome. Welcome back. And now we round out the panel with Joe Miles, SAP Global VP of Life Sciences Industry. And Joe has sent me a one, two, three, four, five word quote from, let me pronounce the full name here, Desiderius Erasmus, who was lived from, let's see, 1466 to 1536. And he was known as Erasmus of Rotterdam or simply Erasmus. He was a Dutch Renaissance humanist, a Catholic priest, a social critic, a teacher, and a theologian. He wrote in a pure Latin style, and let me just read one little thing I found. Joe, you might find this interesting. Among humanists, Erasmus enjoyed the sobriquet, which is a nickname or a title of Prince of the Humanists, and he has been called the crowning glory of the Christian humorist. I'll leave that one on the table. Here is the quote, prevention is better than cure. Joe Miles, how have you been? And welcome back. It's good to be back, Bonnie. Thank you, Joe. So, prevention is better than cure. Are you a follower of Erasmus? I have to ask the same question I asked our other panelists. No, I, I must admit, he was a uh, he was the first time he showed up on my radar was uh, is just kind of researching this. But what I liked about the quote was, um, I suppose, two things. One, the simplicity of it, and um, I think that really aligns in terms of when you think about changing behavior, when you think about a lot of the initiatives that uh, we're trying to undertake in, in terms of changing personal behavior through better life habits and so forth, if it isn't simple, it's just not going to go anywhere. It's not going to work. Um, so I think that is kind of something that's implicit across all of these initiatives and the need to, to make it as simple and as, as crisp as possible. Um, I think we'll have much better outcomes as a result of that. But the other thing was the fact that this is what five, six hundred years old, um, mm-hmm. and it, a reminder that uh, this is not necessarily a new concept, right? This is not really something new that we're we're trying. I think it's uh, maybe in the in the in the last century we were we've gotten a little enamored with some of the drugs and products that have been produced. To, to effectively, you don't have to really worry about your your know, your behavior and of your and your habits, your eating habits, your exercise habits, and so forth, because we've got these magic drugs and products that we can. We can utilize to ensure our health, and uh, and maybe we're coming to realize that's really not the case, and that um, we really have to take mm-hmm. more accountability and more ownership of our own well-being. And in many cases, it's not uh, the simpler approach is the better. Um, doesn't have to be that complicated, but uh, in any in any manner, we need to take more control over it and, and just have better uh, better healthier lifestyles. Interesting. And the we is us, right, Joe? We're talking about we, the individuals who make up the workforce, the individuals perhaps who are the managers of others in the workforce, all of us, correct? Individuals. Absolutely. Yep. All of us. Interesting. I, w- I want to thank you, Joe. I want to compliment the panel on coming up with such interesting quotes from such a wide range of quotable people over so many centuries. We have Mike Manish's Habit is Habit. We have Dr. Paul Tunnis' quote, and that was from Mark Twain, Puddinghead Wilson. We have Dr. Paul Tunnis' quote from Plato, Human Behavior, the Three Main Sources, Desire, Emotion, and Knowledge. And we have Joe Miles quoting Erasmus, Prevention is Better Than Cure. I, I don't think we've had such a well-matched set of quotes from three such diverse thought leaders on the topic 
that are basically so poetic. And so I'm trying to say thank you to the three of you for being so thoughtful in your quotes. Now I'm going to thoughtfully ask each of you to tell me where you're calling from, what time of day or not is it, and what are you drinking right now or what do you rather, would you rather drink later? So Mike Manisha, you're new to the panel. Where are you? What are you drinking? What's in your cup today? Or what are you planning on drinking later, Mike? I'm in Los Angeles, which makes this a little after 8 o'clock in the morning. And as always at that time of day, what's in my cup is tea. Um, with, with apologies to Paul, um, I really wish I could <laughs> say it was coffee because coffee sounds so American and industrial, you know, business gets done, ideas get conceived over coffee. But I grew up in a house um, where everybody drank their coffee black and I never developed the taste for it. So I'm, I'm a tea drinker to this day, which always sounds like, you know, you want to take the afternoon off and, you know, with the Downton Abbey crowd or something, but uh, tea it is. <laughs> oh, what kind of tea? Come on, humor us. What, do you, what exactly is it? Uh, it is English breakfast, just to be very conventional. Well, and how very, very appropriate. Thank you very much, and good morning to you, sir. And let's turn to Dr. Paul Tana. Paul, are you going to let Mike drink tea, English breakfast tea, seriously? Well, it, it depends whether he's got milk in it or not, to be honest, and uh, whether it's properly on a saucer as it should be. Um, Mike? Never Mike wait a minute, Mike. Mike, tell us, is it? Do you? Never milk. And um, uh, I'm sorry about the coaster. I guess I'm, a, I'm 0 for 2. <laughs> go, go ahead, Paul. We've done tisk tisk on Mike Manisha already. Paul, what are you drinking, and are you doing it the proper way? Well, well, I'm drinking tea, but actually I'm with him on this occasion and this occasion only because I'm drinking black tea. And there, there is a reason for that, because we're here mm. talking about preventative medicine. Yes. And most of the time, I'm like everybody else in this country, in England. I'm just outside, uh, just on the west side of London. Uh, and I drink my tea with milk, which is clearly the proper way it should be. Um, but a little bit of science for you. There's been studies that have shown that tea has um, good cardiovascular beneficial effects in that there's a compound in tea that helps your blood vessels expand and contract, makes them a little bit more elastic, and that's obviously good for preventing um, cardiac events. However, mm -hmm. when you put milk in tea, there are molecules in milk that block that effect. So almost all of the beneficial effects of tea are destroyed by putting milk in it. So most of the time, I have no benefit. But for today, we're here talking about prevention. I thought I'd go for a black tea. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, interesting side note, I spent, oh, let's see, I traveled through Europe in when I was about mm, 18 and a half years old, and I lived with a family in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, Paul, A-L, uh, for a month, and they served us so little food <laughs> with whatever the pension deal was that I, I was not a tea drinker. I was not a coffee drinker. We got two croissants, a big pot of jam, wonderful jam. It was like major raspberries and strawberry, really loaded with sugar. Of course it was. I, I won't even tell you how many decades ago that was. Joe could probably figure it out. Maybe Mike can. And um, I learned to put milk in the tea just so I could have some substance in my body to get me through the day because I was attending French classes at the University of Neuchâtel. And even though I was a star French pupil here in New York in my classes in high school, 
I couldn't even remotely keep up with the conjugation of the verbs. <laughs> so I ended up spending my days eating a chocolate bar, sitting on the banks of the river in Neuchâtel, enjoying the sunshine and eating an apple and a chocolate bar. And that's how I got through my life there. So what can I say? So I did put milk in the tea because that's about the only nutrition I got all morning. So there, Paul, thank you very much. And Joe Miles, <laughs> welcome back from your travels. Where were you in Europe last week, Joe? I was in uh, lovely southern Germany and uh, with uh, some customer meetings, and uh, was very actually was the weather was very nice there, uncharacteristically so this time of year. But uh, I am calling you today from uh, lovely Downers Grove, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. It's about ten twenty, and I have uh, some green tea. Uh, no, mm. no saucer, just a coaster. So, <laughs> anything in it, or is it it's the real nice. deal? High test. Neat, so. Oh, it's so, uh, neat. It's neat. We're, we're bring, neat. bring all those liquor terms into it. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We're talking today about the behavior side of preventive medicine, and I think we've already learned a little bit about the behavior side of my three esteemed panelists, Mike Manisha from Deloitte, Dr. Paul Tana, founder of Pharma Forum Media, and Joe Miles at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I learned my lesson the hard way, Joe. I picked up the wrong capsule of... Uh, espresso about a week ago, just before a live SAP radio show, and it was not the decaf kind. And I was flying. I was just flying. And a little bit of, and an espresso has about 30% of the caffeine of regular coffee. Well, it was just enough. It hit me and I was uh, on the, on the ceiling. We had a great show, but it went very, very fast. So today it's back to cool, clear, filtered brittle water, and I have a yellow straw because I'm so happy that the sun is shining after so much rain this week here in New York. We're going to take a quick break and give my three panelists a chance to sip on something that will refresh them, and then we're going to come back with a lot more. Our topic today is the behavior side of preventive medicine, workplace, employees, and pharma. You can have all the great programs you want, kids. Your HR can be a hero, but unless you talk to individual behaviors and you motivate people, what's in it for them to be healthy and be a major contributor to your workplace and your business success? It ain't going to work and that's the way it's going to go down so let's find out how you can make it better it's a new dawn it's a new day it's a new life and we are feeling good don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial we'll be right back justin out business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP. SAP Systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Indeed, let's get back. Our topic today, the behavior side of preventive medicine, workplace, employees, and pharma. That means you. I don't care where you are in the world, your age, what you do for a living. If you're any part of any workplace, you want to be healthy. You you are an employee or you're an employer, but somebody's employing you, even if it's a board of directors. Pharma comes into the picture. How can we as individuals be healthier and better contributors to our companies and to our lives? Our special panel today is is made up of Mike Manisha at Deloitte, Dr. Paul Tana at Pharma Forum. I always have to read that phonetically, Pharma Forum Media, and Joe Miles at SAP. We're going to kick off the roundtable now, starting with our newcomer to the panel, Mike Manisha. And Mike, I'm going to read your first statement you sent me in your notes, and then we'll just go for it. You say the focus on ROI, that's return on investment in workplace wellness programs, comes from an anachronistic view of health benefits and tends to undermine the development of an effective program by providing an excuse to disengage. Mike, can you unravel this and explain this to us, and then we'll talk. Go ahead, Mike. I'll give it a shot. So, Thank you. Um, I've, I've been in business a while, and I started writing contracts. And the, the root of the employer you know, insurance programs uh, was a basic definition of coverage, which says you, you, we would pay for something that was a medically necessary treatment of an illness or injury. And for the last 30 years, that, that definition has been changing. I mean, literally the first thing I ever worked on in my career was adding um, pregnancy coverage to, um, uh, to these insurance plans that you had to treat it as an illness. And since then, we've seen you know, the continuing expansion of what is treated as a, as a covered health benefit. We, preventive care didn't used to be covered. Now, through the ACA, it's mandated to be free. Uh, mental health care often was not covered or, or strictly limited. Um, and now you have uh, mental health parity uh, mm-hmm. with medical care. Uh, coverage of birth control, EAP programs, everything has, has moved in the direction of providing not just insurance for an illness that you treat, but uh, as in the Erasmus quote, when prevention is better than cure, more focused on health. And so the problem we run into with wellness is because it is not mandated, employers look at that and say, well, I'm only going to do it if it doesn't cost me money. So then they focus on a return on investment and they expect it to save them money, be a profit center essentially. And then because of the difficulties of achieving that in a short time period or measuring it, um, they get frustrated with not having what they've set up as their goal when really the goal should be improved health status. Mm. Okay, thank you very much. Let's get Paul Tunner to chime in. Paul, thoughts? I think there's some really interesting points being made there, actually, and and one of them for me hits to the real crux of this issue, which is a lot of these programs are clearly designed to deliver benefit, deliver ROI, but that tangible, measurable return on investment and benefit can be some way down the track. And so that may be, you know, five, six longer years away, 
assessing whether that's working in the short term is difficult. And it's about finding, I think, some of those interim waypoints that say, we're on the right track here, we know this is going to work, but we may not get that tangible, measurable benefit until some years down the line. Very interesting. Joe Miles, I want you to talk about that. And I'm also thinking, what about the stamina or the uh, the vision of the people who put these programs into place? How patient are they? And Joe, talk, talk what you were going to say, and then I want to go down the panel again and see who in leadership will have the patience to wait it out or to come up with creative midterm ROI measurements. Joe? I think Mike makes a, both speakers make a good point on the, the whole wellness you know, uh, approach over the last 10, 12, 10 to 20 years or so has, has really had some lukewarm responses. And I do think that it, it is somewhat rooted in, in a in an ROI-based um, discussion. I don't think it's really look at it directly, but there's been a lot of investment there, and I think there's been a struggle with what, what are companies really getting out of it. Uh, topics like absenteeism and things like that are just so soft. Um, I don't know if they've really ever ever resonated, and I, I agree totally with, uh, with Paul that um, – this is something that's a long-term effect, but I don't. I don't think it can be done solely um, from the business community or from, you know, just one aspect of society. And I think that's where programs, as you start to look at what um, the Affordable Care Act and some of the other initiatives, uh, and even as payers just in general are starting starting to take a more uh, hardline approach on this, where um, the financial reimbursement and the financial implications on the patient, uh, to me, seems like that's ultimately the probably the ultimately the most effective way in which you can change the behavior when there is some type of financial incentive associated with that. I don't think we're quite there yet from a program perspective, but I think as we start to go further down, it may not be necessarily a negative impact in terms of uh, having to pay if you don't do it, but maybe paying less if you do do it, or or some incentives that are more positive in their orientation, but providing a, a greater um, incentive to, to get people to, uh, to move off the dime, move off the couch, if, if, uh, for that matter, and, and make, a, make a change mm-hmm. in, their, in their behavior. Thank you, um, Joe. Let's, let's go back to Mike. Mike, any thoughts on my question of who in leadership will have the patience to wait it out or to be creative in terms of, I think as Paul put it, partway or midway ROI measures that they can take a look at maybe a year or two or even six months in and say, ah, it's working. We see a glimmer of hope here. Mike? Well, I think that that gets to, you know, every time you, you talk with an organization about, you know, what the success factors are, leadership really um, uh, comes right right to the forefront. And it's really because if you have a leader who is, is committed to the proposition, then you can, you, you can sustain this period of time where, where you're trying to see, um, you know, how, what effect you're having. And, and I do want to emphasize when I say not focusing on ROI, I do think measurement is, is, is important. You have to measure any enterprise. But I think the key is getting adoption initially about what your goals are mm-hmm. and that, that the goal should be an engagement-related goal, a health-related goal, and the financial goals uh, will will come in time, but if they're the focus from the from the get go, uh, I think I've just seen so many organizations say, "Well, I'm not seeing it right now." And and frankly, the the, the metrics, even if you're achieving it, can be hard uh, for a combination of reasons. Um, 
I think you you need that that commitment about what you're engaged to try to do. If you're engaged to try to improve health behaviors, you can measure that and you can observe that and you can influence that. Thank you. Let's go to Paul Tana. Thoughts? Continuing this topic? Yeah. I mean, I think defining, I think that's right. You know, we're in a position where you can start to measure things more easily now. We talk about quantified self, all the wearables revolution, all this data, and that's all fine. That's all good. But I think defining that common goal is, is the really key thing. And it makes me think of a conversation I had a few years ago where I spoke to um, a chap who was the psychological coach for the British rowing team. So he's mm-hmm. working with really high-performance athletes, um, helping them with motivation over the Olympic cycle. And he talks about motivation in a, in, in a sense of control. That's one aspect, confidence and connectedness. So control and confidence relate to you feeling you're in a position to change things, you're confident about your ability to do that. But connectedness is that shared goal between what the team is trying to achieve, what you're trying to achieve. The way you articulate that and even the way you view that may be subtly different between those two groups but it needs to be a shared goal that everyone's bought into. And I think that's a piece that sometimes is missing, that, that investment in time at the start to agree this is what we mutually want to achieve. Do you think it's generational, Paul? Do you think that the millennials are coming in with a better sense of self-control or better habits? They're younger. They're probably more exposed to advances in healthcare, to more of the fun wearables that can help them track their health and have specific goals that they can personally espouse, perfect, personally support, and proudly bring into their workplace behavior. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an element of that, certainly with the sort of the big data revolution. And I think mm-hmm. younger generations are less concerned about privacy and more interested in what this data can do for them. But I also think there's a mentality change over time where within companies, 50 years ago, people operated in quite a hierarchical way. You know, your boss would tell you what to do, you get on and do it, and that's how things operated. I think generally with comp- companies now people are more used to working in teams, chipping in, being collaborative. So I think that yields benefit when it comes to this notion of connectedness around preventative medicine and preventative, you know, lifestyle around preventative medicine. Thank you. Joe Miles, love your POV on this, please. Yeah, I think the, both the speakers make some good points. Um, I, th- I think your comment on leadership is an important one because I do think it does require, you know, mm-hmm. leadership at the in the individual uh, industry level, the, the business level where Certainly, um, individual leaders within their organizations can drive a lot of changes. But I think if it's done in a vacuum, I don't think it's it's going to be as successful as uh, obviously if we if we coordinate that more effectively with uh, with other uh, NGO or government uh, organizations. Um, in the sense of uh, having a much more coordinated approach across a broader array of par- parameters and of uh, and changes, I think that's that's ultimately going to have a much bigger impact. It's it's much harder to do. I think uh, I think your point is also well taken on terms of some of the millennials and their mm-hmm. this generation being much more comfortable with technology. Uh, obviously, technology uh, from a wearable perspective and a real world evidence perspective will will help um, measure, manage, uh, and improve uh, a lot of outcomes given greater awareness of your of your own uh, healthy health condition on a day to day basis. Uh, but I think it has to be done in uh, in coordination with. Uh, a broader scope that leaders at all levels need to really align around this to, to really make a substantial change. This is a significant uh, change of behavior for a whole lot of people. So, 
Well put, Joe. And let me just add, if you think about it, who the leaders are, think about the leaders needing to embrace and exemplify, lead by example, OMG for some leaders. Uh, they have to be healthy. They have to show up. They have to be present. They have to believe in what those programs are. I remember way back in the day, I won't tell you how old my son is, but my uh, my obstetrician told me in mid-stage of my, was my, first, my second pregnancy, my daughter, uh, that I was gaining too much weight. Now, I started out at about 90 pounds when I, when I was pregnant pregnant in my, in my second pregnancy. And uh, this, this gentleman was obese. He was big. And his nurse was obese. And they're telling me we need you to eat fewer calories because you're putting, of course, they had my best interests at, at heart and that of my, my child to be. And my baby and I were very healthy, but I went on a tuna fish and I think matzah diet and drank lemonade without sugar for the next three weeks so I could stabilize the weight gain. Uh, I didn't gain a lot at all, but I looked at them, Joe. I hope this point is coming across in my long story here. I looked at them and I said, really? You're telling me to eat less? You're telling me to maintain a healthy weight? Who are you? And there was that sense. Joe, any quick comment on how leaders need to exemplify what they're trying to get their workers to do? Well, it's Walk to walk and talk to talk. Um, there you go. You know, it's pretty effective <laughs> at some level. Um, I think it's just reflective of uh, this is a this is a broader societal issue that we're struggling with. I mean, if you look at, especially in America, where obesity is becoming a, a real chronic problem, and we know obesity leads to a number of uh, chronic diseases and further complicates uh, existing chronic diseases, and we know that just further adds to the, the complexity of, of changing the behavior. And uh, it is all about uh, diet. And I think that's again, goes back to that keeping it simple approach yeah. of it's all about diet, it's all about exercise. But a lot of things that we know, uh, we've known for decades, hundreds of centuries, that this is these types of behaviors are good for you. Um, we just maybe haven't been so diligent in staying uh, with those good behaviors. So. And sleep. I have a really mm-hmm. tangible story, Bonnie. This is Paul, if yes. I can just chip Go ahead, in please, Paul. Yes, jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, I happened to meet at a conference. The, the man who at the time was the chief exec of Weight Watchers, mm-hmm. uh, a lovely guy called Dave Kirchhoff, and he told me a story about how when he got the top job a number of years earlier, he was pretty overweight, and he actually lost four stone because he felt such enormous pressure from stepping into that role mm-hmm. that he had to be healthy. And he then went on to write a book about his experience. I think it's called something like Weight Loss Boss. But it's a prime example of somebody in a leadership position feeling under the spotlight and having to set an example for everyone else. It is, in fact, called Weight Loss Boss, How to Finally Win at Losing and Take Charge in an Out-of-Control Food World by David Kirchhoff, CEO Weight Watchers, K-I-R-C-H-H-O-F-F. He's got two H's in the middle, two F's at the end. Thank you, Paul Tana. Very interesting reference. Uh, let's see. Is it still in print? I'm trying, it's, oh, of course. It's from April 2013, and it looks like there are some used ones out there. At, yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much. We love good references during the show. And Paul Tana, well, I have you. I'd like to look at some of your discussion notes you sent me before the show. And let's. Uh, this references some of the statements in your quote. You say, preventive medicine all too often views the problem as lack of knowledge, but the desire to change and the emotive rewards of change are extremely important. Now, here's what I want to get to. You say, we need to think about a carrot-and-stick approach to getting people to think about their health long-term, and that includes financial incentives and gamification. That's where I want to go, financial and gamification. And, Paul, we had uh, we talked about, it must have been last year on one of our Coffee Break shows, the fact that I think there is a bank... Oh, in Europe, might be in Russia or Germany, that will reward you by putting your savings account into a higher interest 
pocket or bucket, if you will, if you can show how much you're exercising by data you send them from your Fitbit. So you'll earn more money if you're a healthier customer, not an employee, a customer of that bank. So, Paul, let's talk about financial incentives and gamification. Do we have any proof that these work? I think we're starting to see it. I think it's it's more, you know, I talk about the carrot and stick approach, and I think more of it's been on the stick side than necessarily the carrot. So financial disincentives to unhealthy behaviors. And we see that in simple terms with the ever-increasing tax on things like cigarettes, alcohol. We obviously have the big debate over here in the UK at the moment about a sugar tax. You know, should high mm. sugar products be, uh, be have the tax increased? And there is evidence that shows that when that directly hits people's pockets, it does have an impact. I think we're still learning about the carrot side of that equation. So you know, what are the financial incentives that, as you've described, give people money back, help them save money, give them high levels of interest in a saving account, whatever it might be, to motivate them? And I think we're still slightly learning about how that works and, and where best to apply it. Hmm, interesting. Thanks again for the mention of the book. I'm tweeting the link. Very, very interesting. Uh, let's turn to Joe Miles. You're next around the table. Joe, any thoughts on gamification, financial incentives? What's going to work or what isn't working? Well, I think that's all all in play now, and I think we're seeing a real acceleration of um, a lot of technologies that are being brought to bear to, to address some of these problems, especially on the chronic on the chronic disease side. I mean, you're seeing it with uh, wearables. You're seeing it with individual patients taking greater control of their own health care, having greater visibility into that and measuring and managing, you know, their whether it be their diabetics, their diabetes and, and their glucose levels or their heart rates. Um, regardless, I think patient, you're starting to see that now. But I think the, other, the next step in that process is when they start to become financially rewarded for some of those behaviors, which has already kind of begun, but we, we take that further, those types of incentives, I think, will really begin to drive that uh, further. Um, the gamification and then the overall simplification of a lot of these technologies now where, you know, wearables really aren't even, um, you don't even know you're wearing them, right? And, you know, you're tracking them. They're so uh, inconspicuous and, and just built into the uh, the products on the, on the day-to-day basis, um, whether it be your iWatch or your workout shirt. Um, this just makes it that much easier. So the I think what those technologies are allowing people to do is, is they're just providing for a much more simple uh, interaction and user experience, which ultimately will drive adherence. It'll drive um, it'll drive uh, just improved outcomes at some level. Not to mention what it can do for you know for elderly or patients where they may need some assistance, whether it be a reminder, just simply a, your pill bottle lighting up or or mm-hmm. alarm going off on your pill bottle to remind you to take your drugs at some point to ensure adherences or at least to improve adherence, which we know is uh, in and of itself is a problem, uh, you know, across society. Thank you. Mike Manisha, Deloitte, thoughts, please? Financial incentives is, a, is an enormous topic within, you know, the employer health, you know, connection to, to wellness. Um, I think... There's a pretty good recognition, although it's by no means universal, that that some incentive is important to get people to engage in the first place. If you're whatever program you're offering, that that you need some some influence, some financial influence to get people to take a first step. And so employers face first of all the question of is that a bonus? Is are am I giving you some some money in the form of a gift card or cash or whatever that you wouldn't otherwise have? 
or is it a takeaway, the stick? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're... Uh, insurance would normally cost you as the employee $100 a month. It's going to cost $200 a month unless you do the things or achieve the things that that we would like you to do around uh, wellness. And so that the debate turns on on the cost of this, how it is received by employees. Is it is it something? Obviously, if you have a stick approach, it's a little harder to present your program as. A collaborative partnership. We're all, you know, interested in the culture of health. Um, but at the same time, a stick tends to be you can have larger amounts and it's more influential in, in person's behavior. Uh, I think one place where there is a reasonable consensus is, is, is that while the financial incentive is good at initiating engagement, over time, that, that needs to turn to an intrinsic motivation where you, you do these things, you sustain these behaviors, not because you're flogged into them, but mm-hmm. because you found a personal reward. Back to the, the Plato quote of desire and emotion, um, you, you, you found something rewarding in these new behaviors you've adopted. Thank you very much. And because we're running out of time, I want to get to a couple points in Joe Miles' notes here. Joe, I'm just going to read one statement, I think, that will reinforce what we've been talking about, and then I'm going to introduce a brand-new concept and have you quickly explain it. You say 75% of all patients, and I'm assuming patients means somebody who's under the health care of a physician or a related health care provider, 75% of all patients expect to use digital devices in the future to help them manage their day-to-day health and wellness. I think that's a good thing. But here, Joe, is where I'd like to go. You say the continued growth in genomic research and understanding will further enhance our understanding of how genomics play a role in preventative medicine by identifying individuals predisposed to certain disease states. Do you want to just give us a little peek at genomic research relating to our topic of health and wellness for employees in the workforce, Joe? Sure. I mean, it's an area that we're continuing to see a lot of advancing on in uh, at, at the therapeutic level so that we're developing drugs and products that are addressing specific, whether it be chronic diseases or specific disease states based on a um, uh, on a, uh, a genetic profile of an individual patient population. I think where that's going further is that as we get great, continue to improve our understanding of that and we identify um, genomic markers that uh, are indicative of certain disease states later in life, we actually might be able to develop preventative approaches to those um, disease states that um, that we can we can actually, in a preventative sense, uh, treat treat the disease before it actually becomes uh, apparent. I mean, it's it's just at the the area you know the beginning states of these uh, uh, the science. It's still there's this is a very complicated science as we all know, and and we're we're making progress, but it's it's not as fast I think as a lot of us uh, would have expected or would love to see it happen. It impacts all of us, but uh, the same approach that if you just think of uh, uh, Angelina Jolie and her decision to have um, uh, double mastectomy based on her mm-hmm. uh, history of her mother and her uh, her family traits of having uh, yeah. breast cancer and her wanting to ensure that she'll she's around for all of her children. Um, that's certainly a dramatic kind of extension of that, but effectively having an understanding of what uh, you know you're predisposed to at a genomic level and, and the percentage and what the indication of that might be is a I think it's a new a new area of the genomic uh, research, but certainly continues to uh, to to fuel. Uh, a lot of activity on that on that front. 
Thank you very much. I'm going to just quickly go around the panel and see if Mike Minisha and Paul Tana, Dr. Paul Tana, have anything to say about genomic research. I know it's very late in the show and we're just about ready to peek into the crystal ball for our predictions. But, Mike, any thoughts on genomic research just quickly? Um, I think it's, it's incredibly interesting and um, probably a step too far for a lot of the, you know, more uh, rudimentary uh, insurer and employer kind of activities. I think everybody needs to keep their eye on it, but they have enough to handle with what they're dealing with now. Mm, Okay. Paul Tana, quickly on that one before we go back to Mike for predictions. Go ahead, Paul. I think it's a fascinating topic, and it certainly ticks the box of understanding your risk in certain areas. But I think it doesn't necessarily tick the box of motivation to change or indeed motivation to understand that risk. So, I use myself as an example. You have companies like 23andMe who are providing diagnostic Mm -hmm. testing relatively cheaply now. I haven't done that yet, and if I'm honest, one of the reasons is do I want to know what's lying ahead for me potentially? So, you know, there are some challenges, I think, around getting that out there more broadly. Very, very well put. Thank you very much. Mike Manisha, I'm going to honor you with the first spot here looking into the crystal ball. I know you have one at Deloitte and you polished it off. I think Carla Neal probably helped you do that because she's usually on board with these things. Uh, Shout out to Carla, obviously. Mike, take a look in the crystal ball. I happen to love the year 2020, but it is hurtling at us very quickly. It's almost not in the future anymore because it's coming so soon. But how far in the future can you look, Mike Manisha, and tell us what will be different about this topic if we met again at that point in time? I'm going to give you a full minute. Let's see if we have any time left over for more. Mike, predictions, go. Okay. I think that we will improve our habits and nutrition and activity and reverse the trends we see now in obesity. And I think you know, in the same way that we did this with smoking, from a 43% prevalence in 65 to a 17% prevalence now. And I think we'll do it in half the time, which will be 25 years. Mm, I like that optimism. Okay, and you didn't use all your time, so we might have time for a bonus question. And let's turn to Dr. Paul Tun at Pharma Forum Medium and, and Media. And Paul, quickly, uh, Pharma Forum, tell us in one sentence what do you do, and then give us your predictions, please. What do I do? Yes, what is Pharma Forum? So we're a media company, and we, we help all kinds of stakeholders within healthcare communicate with each other, um, which touches on some of the interesting topics of language and how you communicate with different groups, which is a whole separate debate. But in terms of looking to the future, I think we're going to see a lot more data coming through that will give us some of these interim endpoints around understanding are we tracking in the right direction. I think we'll continue to understand motivations around change. I think the piece that's really interesting that will take a bit longer is a personalized approach to people's, um, getting people to change their behavior, because I think that piece is often not in place at the moment. Thank you very much. And let's turn to Joe Miles. Joe, you can have a full minute. We're actually a little bit ahead of time, so I am furiously thinking about, fast and furiously thinking about a bonus question. Joe, take your time. What do you predict? How far in the future and what will it be about employee, wellness, health, workplace incentives, gamification, financials, anything and everything? Joe, talk to me. Okay. I think we're going to continue to see um, the wearable explosion kind of uh, expanding. I think as the, as the devices uh, become more prolific, as the, uh, the devices also become less conspicuous and very um, 
ubiquitous across the whole society. We'll continue to see that that is going to drive an incredible amount of data across all aspects of it. But I think that's where, uh, to Paul's point, I think that's where the personalization starts to become real and how you can make a lot of those types of personalized approaches um, much more real for the patients based on that um, that streaming data that's coming from a, a variety of uh, devices. I think in and of itself, though, that will not necessarily change behavior. It, um, it may be a, it could, has the potential of being just a, a flash in the pan with a cool device that everybody buys and then puts on the, puts on the dresser and mm-hmm. never puts it on again without having um, the financial um, incentives somewhere behind that, whether it's coming through your healthcare program, whether it's coming through a government agency, through the ACO, or whether it's coming through all of that, um, including your, your business um, plans as well, where uh, that's being leveraged and, and, and driven on, on a much more holistic basis across all aspects, I think, is where ultimately we'll make it successful. But um, I do think that, that there's an opportunity where all of that can be realized very quickly as a result of the, the improving in, uh, nature of the technologies. Thank you very much, and I'm going to... Just a quick... Yes, sure, Paul, go ahead, please. Mm -hmm. There's there's two sides of personalization. One is in relation to genetics, which I think we're definitely moving on. But the other side is is in relation to someone's psychology and what makes them change. And that's the piece, I think, that takes a lot deeper understanding to get right. A sort of a not one size fits all approach to motivating people. Very important point. And I was going to ask one quick bonus question. I have time for, I think, a one-sentence answer from each of you. I'll go around the table. When millennials go into uh, ascend into the C-suite and somebody takes over leading, let's say, a CWO, chief wellness officer, or uh, running HR, and comes up with creative new incentives incorporated into the plan for employee health at work, uh, do you think that gamification will Trump, sorry to use that word, will take uh, take precedence over financial incentives for employee wellness. And let's put this in the next five years. So just a yes or no. Mike Manisha at Deloitte, thoughts? Uh, no, I think it's a part of a solution. But if it's your whole solution, you're going to miss too much of your population. Thank you. Very thoughtful. Dr. Paul Tunup, yes or no? And answer? I'd have to say no as well, because I think financial incentives really do bring it into the short term. So Gamification helps with that and helps people change, but it it isn't the overarching solution. I agree. Thank you. I love to have disagreement. That makes for a much more interesting conversation. Joe Miles, join the pack or stand out and partly, partly, what do you think? Sorry, but uh, I would totally agree with uh, two other panelists said no, I don't think that's really uh, going to drive it. It has to be based on financial incentives. It has to be based on uh, on changing behavior and uh, gamification as a tactic uh, at some level in order to do that, but it cannot be the uh, the driving factor. Okay, thank you very much. Glad it was a provocative question, and I love when my panelists disagree with this proposal I said out there. So thank you very much. Mike Manisha, I hope you enjoyed yourself. It was a pleasure to get to know you, and thank you for joining us. Dr. Paul Tana, thank you for coming back. Joe Miles, what can I say? Always a pleasure to have you on. Shout out to all the people who watch the healthcare trends and wearables trends. Susan Rafazada, Brad Borkin at SAP. Shout out again to our friends at Deloitte Consulting, and Paul Tana, all of your people, thank them as well. I've been tweeting madly and happily at hashtag SAP Radio, and I hope you'll all go take a peek and do some retweeting in the next half hour or so so we can get the party started. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Hope you got some good ideas and insights, whether you're an employee or a workforce leader. 
Good insights here. I have a feeling we're going to come back for part three. I'll have to huddle with the guys off air. So thank you to Justin and the Business Channel team. And here is my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bye-bye. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.